the readers and the listeners, and this is for the listeners. I'm Olaf Sarkis, and I'm talking with my partner, Prescott Watson, about the key themes in the Red Blue newsletter this week. June 17th is the date today. Great. Let's dive in. So first of all, if you go out to news.red.blue, you'll find this, but you'll also find another podcast we recorded. This one was the third episode of the Automotive Analyst series with Dan Levy. It's a great conversation, so I'd go check that out. And there are two big kind of topics we, we dive into. Olaf, you covered the first one. Apple had a huge announcement recently at WWDC. Well, it was probably a small announcement by Apple's standards. It was one of the many things that they announced while announcing new software for the iPhone and a new MacBook that they're launching. But it has big implications for the automotive industry. I think the main reason is it signals an increasing kind of penetration of Apple's software into the brain of the vehicle, because what they're doing now with CarPlay is not just having a dumb reflection of the iPhone on the center console, but more deeply integrating with other parts of the vehicle itself in order to be able to adjust things like climate climate control in the vehicle cabin, um, and also integrate it into the instrument cluster so that there's basically a digitally represented speedometer and other things. So Apple's basically capturing a lot of the core real estate screen space. I think a lot of consumers probably look at the images, which look great, and they get excited but it's a different story for car makers, right? It's much more complicated. It's maybe complicated, but I guess the writing's been on the wall to some extent. Almost every car company has had its own infotainment system. Some car companies, I think Ford comes to mind, have had multiple different operating systems within the vehicles. And I think from a consumer perspective, it's never been a great experience. I think people have very low expectations for this kind of system, but the reality is that increasingly consumers have expected more and more from their vehicles, infotainment systems. And ultimately, the pressure has come that they're saying, they're kind of throwing in the towel and saying, Apple's going to do it better. And I think the key thing here is competitive pressure from Tesla. On the Tesla point, anyone that's driven one knows it's its, its own inter interface and love it or hate it. But they've they're not one of the car makers that threw their hat in with the Apple new CarPlay product. I think Tesla's actually been compared quite a lot to Apple in its strategy of vertical integration. And when the Model 3 came out, and even before that with the Model S and Model X, the large screen and the integration with things like Google Maps were real standouts for Tesla. And I think defining towards its brand as a tech company that makes cars rather than a car company that also has like some software that isn't great. And in contrast, there really weren't car makers that could even display Google Maps, which is like the industry standard. Generally, they're using things like Common here with way fewer points of interest, which just made the experience subpar. Also, the silicon that's running in every car is basically worse than the cheapest Android phone you can get on the market today, even if it's a high-end car, because it takes several years to finalize automotive design. And I think Tesla has been able to get around that to some extent by vertically integrating its own silicon into its iPad-like interfaces and its vehicles. So that's why you know, Tesla is the standard. It, it wouldn't work with uh, Apple in the sense because I think this is core to their brand and they've really driven it ahead of, of all the competition and been a, a key differentiator. What's happening now is more a reaction by all the car makers of if Tesla's really leaps and bounds ahead of us in terms of the in-cabin experience, through touchscreen interfaces and through the UX UI design, how do we compete and working with Apple is better than losing. I'm not sure about that. I don't think it's as simple as not losing to Tesla. Actually, 
I think the negotiation dynamics between Apple and the car makers were probably really interesting. Every car maker wanted to have its own interface, for sure. I mean, it's a core part of their brand, just like it's a core part of Tesla's brand. But consumers want CarPlay. I mean, the, the stats are pretty clear. Consumers really prefer these types of uh, interfaces from, from Apple. Or if you're an Android user, people prefer to use Android Auto. Um, no car company wants to give you that. But if one car company starts to offer it, every other car company is at a disadvantage if it doesn't also offer it. I mean, I can tell you that as a consumer myself, I would really hesitate to buy a car if it didn't have CarPlay or if, or honestly Android Auto because I might switch to Android at some point in the future. If I had to get stuck with whatever in-cabin you know in cabin infotainment system that the OEM has, that's a real negative for me and it would make me want to buy a car that did offer me what I want. So Apple kind of needed to get a few dominoes to fall. And then suddenly every car company just had to say, okay, screw it. You know what? We can't be left behind. Otherwise people are going to start, you know, buying a Jaguar over, you know, a Lincoln just because they have CarPlay. So that negotiation dynamic, I don't know if it's a prisoner's dilemma or what, that's fascinating to me. Everyone in our industry talks about how cars are becoming just a big piece of consumer electronics, like a smartphone on wheels. But you dive into why in the American market, it's pretty premature to say that, but things are quite different in China. Yeah, I think our expectations for cars are moderated by the fact that we grew up with cars and our parents had cars and their parents had cars that weren't that different to the cars we still drive today. And so the expectation to have digital technology deeply embedded into cars hasn't been so strong. I'm always a little surprised how tolerant people are of how long it takes to tether their phone to the infotainment system of a car through Bluetooth. Like you have to enter in. If anybody's ever done this, they know the suffering and pain involved. Or if you need to do a software update in the vehicle, just a few years ago, you were still doing it through a USB drive that you had to insert into the vehicle. It's kind of a staggering nightmare of like how bad it is. But in China, consumers own for the most part smartphones before they own cars. And so their expectations of what a car should be is more defined by a smartphone than some pre-developed expectation um, of what cars are pre-technology. You've seen Chinese car makers be much more forward-looking and competitive on the infotainment cluster and the experience and the integration with smartphones and all those things for a long period of time. And even the Western car makers that are competing in China have given more autonomy to subsidiaries in China in order to advance their software capabilities in that market because the consumer expectations are such that you can't really compete as well without having good experience. And you've seen recently one Chinese car magnate, you know, technology magnate, make interesting moves into the smartphone space. There are a few things that are interesting about Gili. The one is that they're actually moving actively into the smartphone manufacturing space. They just acquired this company, Meizu, um, which was once a leading brand, but they created the subsidiary before to be more competitive in the smartphone domain. And they basically say, we're already creating smartphone-like experiences for our cars. We might as well be looking at making smartphones ourselves and getting the return on investment. Also, in this hints at Tesla, even though Musk is doing it separately through SpaceX, they're launching their own low Earth orbit satellites to enable low latency connectivity and also they say, for autonomous functionality, for precise positioning. But my one of my thoughts here is that a lot of the autonomy that we are talked about in very futuristic ways, I think they use the hype of 
the potential for autonomy to really change everything about the industry to make the current vehicles, which are likely to be able to become fully autonomous, seem cooler. Because autonomy, in this sense, if you think about the drive experience and what Apple's doing and what Tesla's doing to make that cabin feel cool and futuristic, autonomy as a sub-portion of that experience is a pretty cool add-on. It's a software-defined capability that changes the way it feels to drive a vehicle. When you're on the highway, you can hand over to autonomous mode and then it hands back to driving. This still doesn't mean they can really do the full autonomy that will change the business model, but it is part of what makes these vehicles appealing to users who like cutting edge technologies as the CEO of a new JV between Geely and Baidu announced when he described what they're making. I think most car companies are guilty of this in different ways and Tesla is the most guilty. You'd say Tesla is the most guilty. I think a lot of Americans idolize Elon Musk for this very point hyping up autonomy, doing crazy futuristic things like satellites. Uh, but it seems like Eric Lee is doing pretty much all these things. I mean, is, is Eric Lee the head of Geely or Geely? Is, is he the Chinese Elon Musk? Yeah, Eric Lee, Li Shofu. I think he he's definitely very creative in how he thinks about what kind of pieces can be assembled into a constellation that's quite synergistic. And I think one of the things that he's done really smartly, and I think people haven't really noticed this so much as being below the radar, but when you look at the constellation, it's quite impressive. So Geely owns Volvo, and it's built a whole lot of other things around Volvo, like Polestar, and there's a group called CEVT, all in the Gotham Swedish ecosystem that's a core driver for technology for the group. Then they've acquired the London electric vehicle taxi company, which makes electric taxis for in the kind of classic London style, as well as Proton, which you know is one of the classic car British brands, more aspirational, best of modern. Even quite an Eastern European flying car company. So there are lots of different pieces in play there. And maybe some of those bets work out better than others. But it's put Geely into a unique position for two reasons. One, they have a unique global footprint of brand assets. And two, they've been able to access and acquire uh, technology that I think is maybe different to what um, players that are just based in China or players that are just based outside of China um, have been able to access. And I think compared to Xpeng or definitely Neo, it's not a company with as much brand recognition here in the US, even though in many ways, they have a much bigger footprint in the US from a consumer product standpoint with brands like Volvo than many other Chinese companies. So definitely one to have on the radar. Yeah, it's Stellantis as a brand, right? Like you don't necessarily think of it. And I think few people will know that Jeep is made by a company called Stellantis. Brand is basically fungible to the extent that you're able to acquire good brands. It doesn't really matter necessarily who the background company is, but it matters from a technology perspective. But yeah, on, on the brand side, of the, the name of this new vehicle that the Geely and Baidu are making together is funny. It's called the Robo-01. And I think you see these kind of quirky names coming out of China, where it's like, in the US, if you made a car that was supposed to be autonomous in some way and future-looking, you'd make it a little bit more subtle that this thing is supposed to be like a robo-taxi by using the word robo. But in China, it's a little bit more direct and in the face. You look at the cruise vehicles coming around San Francisco and they try to use the cutest, most approachable names like Honey Bun or like 
little bee or something. And Wayne, <laughs> I even see this with commercial aircraft. Like they have these cute little names that like mean something for each national carrier. But I feel like in China, like the cars are like, if the, if there's like a Terminator movie name that can be adapted and it's like really distinctive and that will be the name that's used. Okay, so the other thing we spoke about this week is obesity. And, and we mentioned this last week in the context of safety. Part of the context here is Fresco and I were both interviewed together by Bloomberg. And this was a theme that that came up and it resonated quite strongly because I think it's becoming increasingly obvious, especially as battery prices tick up, that the way in which American electric vehicle transition is happening could be extremely problematic from the perspective of the amount of battery cells and the amount of lithium and other rare or restricted supply raw materials are available that that transition is quite problematic. Prescott, do you want to talk more about what the challenges are and maybe where you see some opportunities? The challenges with the way that we as Americans are making electric vehicles are pretty basic. It comes down to like geometry and the, the geometric problems represent themselves in cities. Like cars are just big and they take up a lot of space, but we also make really large cars and those are heavy and we want them to go very far. And so they need huge batteries. And so Everyone's cars have 60 kilowatt hour, 70, 80, 100 kilowatt hour packs. And that's just an enormous amount of battery for a car whose average trip is going to be five to 10 miles down the road to commute. I think the average American's driving 40 miles a day. And if you're assuming that's mostly a commute with a midday break, that's really only 20, 30 miles of one way travel at a time. So having to haul around thousands of pounds of batteries and even having the thousands of pounds of batteries in the first place, it doesn't make sense for most trips we take. And it's also meaning that EVs are now completely priced out of the average American's automotive budget. Bloomberg ran a story this week saying that American EVs are now averaging over $60,000. Yeah, you said we Americans. I'm actually not American, as I've been periodically reminded by the State Department when I have to apply for new visas. What are, what's happening in other places? I think many places have followed the American paradigm. Obviously, Europe is a little different. Japan is famously different. I think the average car there is leaner than the average Japanese is also leaner than the average American. What about China? Because I think in some ways it's really followed an American model and in other ways it's doing its own thing. Yeah. So we say that Tesla may be credited for launching the electric revolution, but the changes that are really happening to push electric adoption and to really electrify ground transportation, those changes are now being in many ways defined by what's happening in China. And what's happening there is very different than the image of electric cars that we Americans have. So the most popular models are what you call mini cars. These are like $5,000 micro vehicles that have 15, 10, maybe 12 kilowatt hour pack. They can go 50, 60 miles, maybe 80 miles. Some of them can drive on the highway, some of them can't. And they're not necessarily technologically revolutionary. They're more defined by what they don't have. Like they don't necessarily have regenerative braking because an inverter required to do regen braking is like $700. And if your car is $5,000 and you don't need to go that far, you don't really need that type of component. But what's interesting is that some of the most popular models allegedly, and we haven't dissected the financials, but allegedly can be profitable even before government subsidies. And that's something that is really groundbreaking because the defining characteristic of the American EV market, and Europe for that matter too, is that cars don't sell unless the government 
makes them sell. And in the US, we give people almost $10,000. I think that might go up higher just to buy electric cars. But in China, people are buying electric cars because they're useful, they're seen as cool, and they're affordable. And that's only possible because they've been right-sized down to what people actually need cars to do. Yeah, it's interesting to maybe think about smartphones in this context too, where the iPhone has really driven the growth of smartphones, but the peace dividends, as they're called, of the smartphone wars have been borne out in all sorts of areas around the world. I think about India, for instance, where we've spent some time where almost everybody has a phone, but it's in almost every case an Android phone because the price point of the iPhone is priced out for most consumers. And so they're running you know, these cheap, often Chinese-made uh, models, but that's what's brought smartphones and the, the power of an app ecosystem to billions, literally billions of people around the world and, and the opportunities that come with them. So do you see like a, a similar similarity here? I think it's striking that these cars, at least in China, are a tenth of the price of a Tesla and they're still potentially profitable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these small EVs are really benefiting from the technology advancements that were pioneered in many time, in many cases by American companies. Steve Levine has a great book that looks at the battery wars and some of the key chemistries like NMC, et cetera, were developed by American labs. And the people taking best advantage of them sometimes are Chinese cell creators. It doesn't change the fact that if from the environmental perspective or from a social perspective, if you want to electrify transportation, figuring out a way to get people to buy cars that they can afford and popularizing those types of vehicles, ultimately what needs to happen. I don't think it necessarily matters to, to Ford, GM, Toyota, et cetera, because they can keep making large, expensive products because as long as the US continues to be a market where there are enough people that want to spend $85,000 on, on an EV, that's profitable for them. That's still attractive. But from the perspective of how do we actually decarbonize transportation, these small cars, which are being sold in enormous volumes, they're going to matter at least as much. Yeah, I think in, in some ways, America, it's it seems very hard to reverse the expectations of consumers. You know, thinking about getting it around a city like Detroit in a microcar is, is an almost amusing idea. But one idea that I think is quite interesting is if you think about golf carts as a market segment, um, they've grown pretty quickly because all these environments in America where you need a different, smaller scale vehicle. And there are ways in which you can think about where we actually use transportation and how much we really need to go that far and that fast. And at a $5,000 price point, it's almost an option call. It's not that expensive to to use something like this in a certain environment or to roll it out, even as a shared service. Um, so it's interesting to think about what potential is created when you make a car that cheap, that is still quite functional. Yeah, we've both looked at a number of startups that are trying to create mini cars that are like the Polaris vehicles, but a little bit less off-roady for retirement communities, for example. And I think it speaks to the way you fix car obesity in the United States. And to extend this analogy, like medical obesity, it stems from the fact that as individuals, we all want these huge cars. Like I personally would love to have a Ford Bronco, which is not even that big of a car. But the the issue is not just like the individual choice, right? It's solidified by how we have this whole system designed around enormous parking lots and 10-lane freeways that makes it undesirable, unpleasant, and dangerous to walk or bike or even have a small car. And then once the culture, be once you become accustomed to seeing people in larger and larger vehicles, it's 
it's not cool to be in a small car. So it's interesting how interwoven transportation choices, transportation system design is, and how it takes a long time to get people to think, hey, one, I could feel comfortable driving a small vehicle around. I'm not going to get killed. And that requires a different looking city. And two, like, I won't feel weird driving a small car. Like it's not going to make me feel bad that I'm not in an enormous SUV. And that takes a long time. That's like demographic change and preference change. When I'm feeling particularly provocative, I say to Americans that the problems with both healthcare and transportation aren't so much the capitalist system in America, but it's actually the ways in which some parts of the system are still quite socialist. So if you think about like how healthcare doesn't have clear price signals, it's not really a free market at play and there's a lot of capture of various kinds. When you think about transportation, free parking, it's basically socialized space for cars. If you think of a city like New York, how much, how many central parks are basically, sorry, how many central park size pockets of real estate are set aside for people to basically freely plant their car, whereas the cost of actually having an apartment in New York is way higher. There's just a massive, and that's in New York and everywhere else in America is worse. There's just a massive socialization and subsidization of the cost of these overweight cars that is being allowed to push the size of these vehicles up and up because the full cost is not being borne by the people buying them. And in contrast, if you look at Tokyo, when you get a new car there, you have to have a private piece of real estate set aside and they'll come and measure and make sure that it's actually the right size. So there's a completely different incentive structure. It turns out that Japanese cars are much smaller on average. It is starting to change though. I mean, we've seen a lot of startups trying to push forward miniature vehicles. And back in 2018, when you and I invested in uh, Frank and Paul of Revel, a big thought process there was that if Americans aren't going to make the jump to buy smaller vehicles like mopeds, maybe the right way to introduce them into American cities is to allow them to rent or you know easily access those types of smaller vehicles in a shared use case business model. But on the spectrum from ownership to shared fleets, I think that vehicle right sizing and smaller vehicles in general are making their way into you know the American car culture, which is a good thing. But yeah, the Chinese are ahead of the United States in many ways, and I think this is just uh, one of those. That's it for this episode. Go to news.red.blue, that's news.red.blue, to get the full newsletter, including the uh, podcast for the week, as well as um, our commentary and uh, aggregation tables of all the news that's being covered, that's sorted and tagged, upcoming events, and the like. Thanks for listening. See you next time.